Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, um, you know, is an amazing episode where we get to talk about something that we care about on this show a lot. Um, and we have none other than Zakia. By the way, before we start, Donnie, Zakia or Zakia? Because I want to pronounce it correctly. Zakia. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to make sure um, yeah. that I that I pronounce it correctly because yeah. that, and blame it on my mind, not my heart. That's all right. That's all right. All right. Welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have joining with us Zakia Ellis. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I don't have too many complaints, at least none okay. you really want to hear about. Okay. You have small children, as do I. So we're a small child. So um, there's lots of complaints how did, on how that did your, How does yours? She's two. <laughs> my, one of my four-year-olds came in about three, jumped in bed with us, which he always does. And he snuggles next to me. Oh. And then the other four-year-old came stumping around there talking about, mama, mama. I need you to come get in my bed with me at 4 a.m., cutting on lights, talking to oh, people. Oh, I couldn't do the twins. Uh, we just go into her room and we trade off. So I was there from about 4 to 5 a.m. Yeah, no, that yeah. that is, yeah. It's lovely. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway lovely. Everybody, want twins. everybody want twins except people to have twins, I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't want twins. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure yours are great, but I don't want twins. <laughs> So look, we start each one of our episodes the same way where we have our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. Uh, and you've had a storied career in public service as well as the private sector. Um, can you walk us through your career stop since finishing Harvard, I believe? And why is education your passion? Sure. Um, try to give y'all the, the short version. So um, I, I was interested in education even in high school. I wanted to be a teacher. But at the same time, I saw that my teacher's were constrained by policy that they did not create. So what time the school day started, what time it ended, what textbooks we used, those were not things that the teachers themselves got to define. So I was interested in the policy aspect as well as the teaching part. Um, I went straight from undergrad to grad school um, because my mom said you get paid more if you have a master's degree as a teacher. And, and she was not wrong. So she said, hurry up and get your master's degree. So I went straight through. Um, but I did a little... Um, internship in between undergrad and grad school. I went to um, the Hill and did an internship for my congresswoman, who was um, Cynthia McKinney at the time from the 4th District of Georgia. Uh, oh, yeah, we could do a whole show. <laughs> we could do a whole other show. But um, anyway, uh, I, I that sparked in me um, a, a desire to come back to D.C. And so instead of going full-time into teaching, I decided to take a detour and come back to D.C., um, quite frankly, I wanted to work on K-12 policy, but it was a crowded space at the time. And so I got a job doing um, college affordability policy and specializing in um, financial aid and student loans, which nobody else really wanted to work on. And so I got into the nitty gritty of that. Um, and then over time, that just became something that was valuable to know about, about the financial aid process, about student loans. I got a crazy random break and got an opportunity to work for Barack Obama in the Department of Education and then in the White House. Um, I was tired after the first term and I went to uh, a foundation and at um, spent five years working in philanthropy and leading the DC office for a higher education foundation. And then I left there and went to the state of New Jersey where I was most recently for mm -hmm. um, five years as Governor Phil Murphy's secretary of higher education and um, then his chief policy advisor. So not just on education, but on all things policy. So then we had kids, they were a kid and said, it's time to come home. So now I'm back home in my hometown of Atlanta and um, working with the education consulting firm here. 
Well, look at you. So we had a guest a few weeks ago uh, that helped us talk about the students for fair admission case and the legal issues at play. Uh, but as someone who was also following the case, that has been following higher education for years, and this had practical roles like advising university systems and presidents and governors, what concerns you most about those cases and the future of higher education access for Black students in particular? Well, I'm very concerned, and I happen to be at a consulting firm that's based in a law firm that has done a lot of work on these cases in particular, submitted briefs. I'm not a lawyer, but um, have uh, learned a little bit even more since being here. And um, I think when people think about this, they think of affirmative action. They think of students going to Harvard. I mean, that's one of the cases in these elite colleges and that certainly is a part of it. But I think it's important to realize affirmative action as we think of it has not actually existed for 30 years. Um, affirmative action as a compensatory, like, oh, you know, we are trying to help out, you know, students of color by giving them, a, that is not the, the case around this right now. At some point, this changed into being about the diversity of campuses and the fact that having a diverse campus actually benefits, frankly, white students. And that being the rationale, the educational rationale. And there's lots of evidence that diversity in all kinds of settings actually leads to better outcomes for people. Um, so that's what's at risk. And being able to um, support diversity based on kind of the use of race in particular. And when I think about what's at risk, when you listen to the, the justices and the line of questioning, particularly from the conservative, quote unquote, conservative justices, um, it was questioning the idea of the use of race and the students for fair admissions. They're, they're, and that is not just about admissions. When you think about the broader ecosystem of what's happening right now and the backlash to DEI efforts, um, if you have an initiative that is about as many colleges actually in South Carolina do, from Clemson has a signature one, helping black males succeed on campus. Mm -hmm. That is targeting students based on race. And you could be a community college that it's has that. Called, I believe the, the language is race conscious admission, right? Yeah, the race conscious admissions um, is what they're, they're looking at, but you could take that thread to, um, and we don't know what they're going to say, so I'll preface it with that, but they could be looking at, um, denying not only the opportunity to do race conscious admissions, but to use race in other ways to target any kind of benefit or support that students get. And there are a lot of scholarships, potentially for Native American students and mm -hmm. other kinds of um, programs and policies that are at play here too. Um, I should also note that black students are seeing a precipitous decline in their enrollment in higher ed. Um, you know, not to say it's unrelated from this current Supreme Court case, but since 2011, we have, 600,000 fewer Black students enrolled in higher education than we did back then. We have more Black people in America, so that is concerning. Um, oh, wow. How are colleges and universities preparing for a potential worst case scenario that could impact admissions? Because this could have a chilling effect on minority admissions. Absolutely. Um, frankly, I think they're not doing enough. So if anyone is listening, say, or are they preparing? I yeah, know. I, <laughs> some some are, but um, uh, I think there there's one a uh, uh, you know, small group of colleges that's probably thinking about and strategizing. There's a larger group that may not realize the effect that this is going to have. This is sitting within the ecosystem of, you know, DeSantis in Florida saying you can't do DEI stuff in general, which um, is broader than admissions. So um, colleges sh should be taking stock of their programs and policies, thinking about ways that they can diversify their campuses, promote diversity outside of this. Targeted outreach and recruitment is always something that they should have been doing anyway. 
it is harder. It is harder to say, like, I'm going to go to high schools that disproportionately serve Black, Latino, um, Indigenous students. I am going to seek them out. If they are 10% of someone in a high school, I'm going to go to try to find them. Um, but just like they really, really try to find talented football players, I think they can put resources into trying to find talented Black kids that are academically prepared for college. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Let me play devil's advocate here. I actually hate that word because the devil don't need no advocates. But if black students have a harder time getting into the most colleges, if race is eliminated as a consideration in the admissions process, isn't it a fair thing to say that HBCUs could benefit? Won't HBCUs benefit from more students possibly attending their schools if black students aren't getting into predominantly white institutions um, as much as it was if it was used? Uh, and if this is the case, then most, do you follow this train of logic? Is it logical? Does it make sense? Actually, yes. And I, I'm, I don't think it's a, you know, bad thing. I think it, it could be a silver lining um, in ways. The only, the challenge that I have is that there are 600,000 fewer Black students. And so we need more Black students going to college. And wouldn't it be great if every HBCU was filled to capacity? But I think when I think about the numbers, the capacity that we have right now at HBCUs to serve all of these Black students is not there. So absolutely, we need to be investing more in the capacity of HBCU. We should have been doing that anyway, absent this case, but this actually gives us reason to be investing more in HBCUs um, because we know that they will be a haven for Black students. Two questions, two-part question, but this is, a, I, I was drilling down on this question for you earlier as I was kind of outlining this. So we saw Roe and the response from the left was uh, that we needed to codify Roe to protect it from the Supreme Court. If uh, the SFFA case goes badly, as we think it will, is there a policy response that could be developed in response um, that would operate in the same way as codifying, codifying Roe? And if you were advising um, a progressive governor who wants to run for president like Gavin Newsom, or you were advising, you know, Akeem Jeffries, what would be those two responses, both from a state level and a federal level? Absolutely. Well, on the state level, you know, states have their own public systems of higher education and rules around colleges and universities writ large. And there's definitely a role. When we were in New Jersey, we embedded um, equity into our funding of, of colleges and universities. We literally gave people more money if they enrolled more and it said it in our state law, Black, Latino, um, Indigenous students. And um, and, and if they successfully complete it, they got even more. So that is something that they can and should do at the state level. There should be encouragement and support for 
um, diversifying your campuses and particularly, um, I think very explicitly with um, black students, I'll just say that there's all kinds of needs across student demographics, but because you asked, there's um, almost in every state a need to increase black student enrollment in higher education. Um, at the federal level, we can certainly look at something. The worry is that this goes broader than what happened in, um, in you know, the disbanding of Roe, where it said there was a federal protection. This is basically having a higher standard to say, if you use race in any way, that that is unconstitutional at a federal level, not turning it back to the states, but saying that's not something you could do. So there's reason to be concerned, but I think as a backstop, folks should be thinking about that now. What does the law look like? And then make them take that, that to court. Like there's a, a strategy on that side as well. We should be a little bit, We, I mean, we should have been a little bit more pro, um, proactive on this and having some cases teed it's up. Not too, it's, you know, it may be, you know, it's better late than never. So we should uh, be moving forward on that. You also study and closely monitor access to higher education issues, broadly speaking. What trends have you seen in Black students in higher education that can, should concern us outside of the dwindling numbers? And what can we do about those trends? And what can we do about the dwindling numbers? Well, the dwindling numbers is one. The other that I would say on the back, so that's like kind of the front end. The back end is student debt, which disproportionately impacts um, Black students um, more. But we can bail out. Now, wait a minute. We can bail out uh, Silicon Valley Financial Institution Bank, whatever they, whatever they're called. Um, but we, but it, you know, student loans is too much. How does that work? Uh, I don't know how that works because um, the Black students bear the disproportionate brunt of having student loans, and I will say whether they complete college or not. So unfortunately, the more likely scenario for a Black, like I think people in their mind think of, you know, I don't know, maybe they think of a Bakari Sellers. They think, oh, he's a lawyer, he's on TV, he went to college, and we're going to bail him out. And the more likely scenario is, you know, my cousin who worked at Target and went back to community college or, you know, University of Phoenix yeah. and took out a loan. The loan was $10,000. They didn't finish because the college didn't provide them the support. And now they still got to pay back the loan and they're still working a, you know, uh, minimum wage job. And I'm not trying to pick on Target or University of Phoenix, but those are fictional examples. Are you just picking on me? <laughs> right, I meant to pick on you, but not them. But so that is who we're talking about. Um, and that is unfortunately the disproportionate share of black borrowers are um, lower, moderate income, don't have fancy jobs, didn't go to fancy colleges. Mm. How did this current administration stack up in terms of steps taken to expand access to higher education for students of color? And you you may laugh at the framing and some others may laugh at the framing, but specifically, how does the Biden Department of Education um, and their policy line up against the Trump administration? Because there's some who think there's no difference and Trump touted some things he did for HBCUs, mm -hmm. et cetera. So how do you measure as somebody who lives and lives and breathes in this work? How how do you measure the two? Well, I think Biden is, you know, kind of midway point and um, they have, um, I think, done, a, I won't say a phenomenal job. I think they're still working, but they're working really quickly on shutting down predatory colleges, really looking at the value that colleges give their students and supporting college students and black college students, um, supporting investments in HBCUs, supporting investments in students through Pell Grants. They are for doubling the Pell Grant. They are for increasing funding for um wraparound support, so not just the financial aid for tuition and fees, but all of these other things that you have to pay for when you're in college. Though that that breadth 
of agenda was not there in the Trump administration. So while I'd totally give credit and they supported an increase in HBCU funding, and that is great, the breadth of all of the additional supports that students need to be, to, to be successful, I did not see that. And I do see that in the Biden administration. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. What role do HBCUs play in this Black student access and success question? And have we seen these major donations and positive fiscal environment in Washington for HBCUs make an impact on Black students actually accessing higher education? I think um, we're still TBD, but anytime you're investing after years and years of disinvestment and not um, the same investment, um, it's going to take some while to catch up. So I sometimes I think we think, oh, you know, we provided this money. It's going to change overnight. It's like, OK, well, it's this gonna is only change centuries of underfunding. Right, right, right. So we're talking about um, something that's going to take a while to get there, but it's certainly helpful. I mean, it's certainly uh, helpful, but we can't stop there with what we've already done. How concerned should we be about the Supreme Court in this student loan case? Mm -hmm. And do you think a worst case scenario decision for the Supreme Court affects black borrowers and their and their student debt more? Or is it just we just continue to you know do the same shit we've been doing? Um, it definitely affects black borrowers more because black borrowers would have seen um, just, you know, from a proportional standpoint, more benefit. So there is kind of like a hope and a lifeline thrown out there and saying, oh, it's possible that, you know, this like primarily impacts those that are making less than $75,000. It impacts, you know, the majority of black, you know, student loan borrowers. Um, you know, again, some folks may not think 10 or $20,000 is um, a big amount, but this, those dollar amounts, um, black students have more debt 12 years after they enter college than when they started. That means that even when they're paying it back, not in default, that's just because interest is accruing because they're not in jobs that are able to support, you know, full like payment. So this, this is um, certainly going to be a blow, but I don't think we should be completely discouraged. We have to continue to fight to think about ways that we can help students, you know, 
not only um, deal with their debt, but not have the debt in the first place. So reforming college affordability is a big part of what needs to happen. Yeah, because I mean, if you forgive the debt, but you don't do anything to rein exactly. in costs, it don't matter, right? Exactly, exactly. Final question for you. I'm concerned with what we're seeing, as in many people are in states like Florida, around diversity um, and inclusion programs in higher education. For people who aren't playing close attention, Maybe your firm's doing some work down there. I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about the assault on diversity and equity programs in higher education from radical governors like Ron DeSantis? And what are the practical Im implications if those programs go away for students of color? Absolutely. Um, I Yes, we are looking into this right now. Um, we're seeing it spread. So, you know, from working at a state level, anytime something happens and whether it's, whether you think it's positive or negative, if somebody sees a leading governor do it, then a lot of other states want to, you know, um, play copycat. Um, what's happening in Florida, for those that are not aware, um, Governor DeSantis is going after what he calls woke ideology in colleges. And he believes colleges are indoctrinating students to make them, um, you know, radical and woke. And what he sees is literally anything, any program that can be classified as diversity, equity, or inclusion-based, any academic program or wraparound service, he's asking their colleges to submit a list of those. He's asked, and people have submitted things. I looked at the list. One college said that their support of their Black Student Alliance was a DEI program. And so, uh, you know, when you think about I, you know, grew up in Atlanta, which is a, a very um, black city, but I went to Vanderbilt University, which is not a very black school. And I was the president of our <laughs> Black Student Alliance. Oh, that's cute. You guys used to huddle together under the trees and stuff and <laughs> with the football players and the <laughs> I actually in think the, when the I Greeks. was <laughs> basically, yes. Um, you know, I wore my red for Delta Sigma Theta today. Uh, but but the, you know, some people have, have wondered. Is a divine nine, you know, a, a historically black, you know, Greek letter organization? Is that a DEI program because it, you know, targets there? You know that they're they're not exclusive. Um, just like people have wondered, are HBCUs going to be targeted as a DEI? What does he think about FAMU in the state of Florida and its role that it plays? So there are a lot of unanswered questions about how far this goes. I There's didn't have a lot the same of questions. I mean, can you go yeah. after FAMU's right. or the equipment's funding? I mean, right, right, and they haven't yet. Um, and I don't want to be alarmist, but I don't think it's out of the question to be concerned. I don't want to be alarmist. So let me sound the alarm. I love it. <laughs> anyway, uh, Zakia Ellis, you have done absolutely everything everywhere. Uh, you are a beacon of bright light. I love the beauty, poise and brilliance you bring to everything you do. So keep shining. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Today. Thank you All for right. having me. Have, have a, a good one. one. Oh,